picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Episode of the Psycho Semanticast. I think it is episode 52. I should check more often, but I can always cut that part out. Anyway, we are here to talk about 1998's Pleasantville. And before we get into talking about the movie, let's talk about my co host today, my special guest. It's the first time for you. And uh, this is Mr. Daniel Harper of, geez, three, possibly th- three podcasts or more. How many do you have? <laughs> I, have I have a, I have a lot of uh, various podcasts of indifferently updated uh, uh, schedules, uh, lots, but, but kind of, I guess, three major main ones. Let's see. So you've got your main, which, which is, which is your main, I know you mostly from, they must be destroyed on site, followed closely by... One of my new favorite podcasts. They, I don't speak German. <laughs> they must speak German on site. <laughs> they must speak German on site. Yes, no. And um, are you not also on a podcast with my dear friend and past guest Kit Power? I am. Yes, uh, I'm on Wrong with Authority, um, and that one is uh, kind of a uh, that's a that's a hypothetically it's a podcast about uh, his movies about history and the history they're about. We have done uh, nine episodes of that in a little over a year, um, just because that's trying to get four uh, very busy people and very busy kind of creative people together and uh, getting getting us all to uh, watch a movie and talk about it for, for two or three hours is sometimes a challenge. Um, but we also have uh, lots of other sort of sub-threads in that uh, same feed. So I do like a uh, we do like a, a podcast called Consider the Reagan. That's a uh, podcast thread about uh, movies from the Reagan era. 
and uh, those are usually go out as commentary tracks. And so we do a lot of kind of fun stuff like that on, on that feed as well, which is why it's like, how many podcasts are you on? Uh, a few, a I don't handful? know, like, you know, a handful. <laughs> um, and then I have, I have a couple that are, I have one that I'm still paying for storage for, uh, my, my Doctor Who podcast, uh, Oi Spaceman, uh, which kind of branched out into being also about like other sci-fi television shows and such. Um, similarly, I had kind of several subthreads, and then um, right around November 2016, I had other priorities, unfortunately, <laughs> than to uh, keep talking about Doctor Who. So, um, so yeah, no, I, I have I have lots of indifferently updated podcast threads, but but the two main ones right now are definitely uh, they must be destroyed on site, which is what probably most people listening to this would possibly know me from. Probably. Um, and then uh, I don't speak German, which is a podcast about. Uh, Terrible people and the propaganda they spew. Um, I've been following the alt-right through their podcasts and YouTube channels for about the last two years, uh, 30 to 40 hours a week. And uh, I basically Jack Graham sticks a coin in me and I spew information about some topic every week. So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) that's what that is. And that that some of that expertise will definitely come in handy talking about the subtext and story of Pleasantville. You really think you really think there might be some kind of political element to this movie? I'm I'm not sure. I think this is just a silly comedy about like this is like Stay Tuned Part Two, right? Yes, this would be an interesting pairing with Stay Tuned because if you haven't seen Pleasantville, I'm not exactly sure why you're listening to this episode yet. But maybe you're a person that doesn't care about spoilers. But Pleasantville is, uh, I think we may have seen said already, but if we haven't. It is a 1998 comedy drama. Harken back to our Dave episode. This It is writ, co-produced and directed by Gary Ross, who wrote Dave. Yep. This was his uh, directorial debut. Was it? Yep. And he has gone on to um, direct uh, uh, several other movies, and a couple of the um, Hunger Games movies, and also the recent Ocean's 8 that was his as well. Oh, oh and uh, Seabiscuit. Sorry, I can pull him up here. I've got the uh, Wikipedia page open. <laughs> I don't have to actually memorize these things. I can just tell. Yeah, so he's done. Uh, he's done a few movies. Um, he's, but this was his uh, directorial de- debut. And he got a great supporting cast for this movie. Speaking of people that have been in a couple movies that people may have heard of, it stars Tobey Maguire, Joan Allen. Uh, I, I'm terrible with remembering character names, so if that's a pet peeve of yours, I'm sorry. In my head, oh, I call oh, her. Oh, I'm 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 terrible at that. So yeah. okay, as Mrs. Pleasantville and <laughs> William H. I think Macy. that should be the title of this podcast, just Mrs. Pleasantville. <laughs> did I say Jeff Daniels yet? Not yet, oh. but now you did. Now I did. Jeff Daniels as the repressed painter. Don Knotts as the taking the place of the accused or convicted, I do not know, child molester uh, in the role of Satan. (laughs) This this movie, Satan. Kind of more of a Loki figure, maybe. I don't know. We can talk about that. Yeah, Loki Loki is better. But if we're pairing it with Stay Tuned, he plays. Right. uh, um, But anyway, two siblings get sucked into the television in the, you know, leave it to beaver kind of world. I'm sure this is written in a summary somewhere, but not in the summary I looked up. Life can't just be black and white. Yeah. (laughs) It's really, it's profound, isn't it? You know, sexual awareness leads to rebellion. 
uh, possibly a thing or when you realize that you're being repressed too much or, you know, personal repression leads to larger governmental oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, giving Basically, to... orgasms lead to books, lead to good music, and none of the olds understand any of that, except for Joan Allen and Jeff Daniels. So They're two good adults to have in the room. Especially I... Jeff Daniels as, like, cubist Santa Claus painter. There's some really like surreal imagery in some of this that I think gets a little overlooked uh, in terms of the way that people talk about this film sometimes. <laughs> I don't I mean the beginning of the movie is the basic setup. There's not a whole I I mean I guess they they establish Toby Toby Maguire's the sort of unassertive nerdy guy with the I don't know. I don't want to say sexually aggressive, but sexually free sister. I mean, she's she's kind of like. Um, I mean, she's she's kind of like the the more uh, honest version of like Cher from Clueless, right? She's just kind of like this this fairly superficial kind of fashion plate who uh, likes to get laid apparently, and like that's awesome. I have no problem with any of that. Um, the film might. I think there's. I think there's a little. I think there's a little bit of slut shaminess kind of going on there. But you basically got sort of the the popular the popular quote unquote slutty girl, uh, and then her brother, this kind of the, the the nerdy kid who's obsessed with like an old 1950s sitcom, and the struggle of sexuality versus I don't know being alone, <laughs> <laughs> sexual uh, physical sexuality versus voyeurism. I don't know, but it's a new TV. It doesn't work without the remote, and it's still right. 1998 new TV. So it's yeah, it's a giant box, but it's got to be big enough to fit the world that they get sucked into after Don Knotts gives them the replacement remote that looks like it would launch a nuclear missile towards Cuba. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I had I had a moment kind of looking at that remote, and uh, it definitely made me think of uh, like the the Fallout series of video games, you know, <laughs> like, like that kind of you know, like one big button that just kind of goes boom, and then you know, giant set of Nixie tubes are uh, you know light up or something. It, it, it does it does feel like something that's uh, you know like it's going to call it an airstrike in uh, you know some post apocalyptic wasteland based on you know 1950s uh, aesthetics. They come to grips with it, I think, a lot quicker than it's just kind of accepted immediately that they've been sucked into the television program. Certainly quicker than I think you or I would. But I mean, it is I mean, this this does kind of strike me when I when I watch this movie is that there is a lot of sort of going through like the plot kind of chugs along. And I think I noticed it more on this watch than I have in previous watches. Um, because I've never like kind of prepped it as a, as a podcast before. Um, I saw this, I actually saw this theatrical the first time, um, when I was 18 years old. So, um, and, and I, I just, I was like profoundly moved by this film. It used to be kind of on my list of, you know, kind of all time top favorite films. I don't think I would put it there now, but I think it's one that I kind of list as it was really important to me at the time. And I still think it's a really, really solid watch. Um, and, and I think in, it has some some relevance that I think again rewatching it now I, I definitely kind of caught on to some things that uh, that will have relevance as we kind of get into more of the themes. But um, yeah, no, I I think the if the the one of the big you know kind of um, negative points of the of the film uh, is that it it does kind of have a a fairly straightforward uh, workman like plot. Um, it is sort of like it presents this kind of thing. 
and it just sort of has to get, you know, it has to get the kids into the TV. And so you need some kind of trickster demon guy. Um, and so you kind of introduce him and then suddenly they're inside this world and then they kind of have to have like reasons for like why they're not just going to like try to get out or whatever. They're going to be involved in this world. And uh, that's not really justified. It's just sort of like, well, I guess we're going to walk to school now. And then that's just kind of what they do. You know, <laughs> It is interesting, though, that, that having made that decision, that both characters uh, – sort of find other things, you know, they, they start, they start fucking around this world pretty much immediately. Um, in particular, uh, Reese with the spoons character, Jennifer, um, you know, she, she's not into kind of being here to begin with. She's really just, she finds a hot boy and she's like, Oh, well, I'm just going to go fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't and, exist. Uh, you can't and, do that to someone who doesn't there's exist. Some, there's some, there's some deep problematic stuff in terms of consent, in terms of what she does with that boy. But you know, <laughs> I mean, these characters are, you know, despite, I mean, it's Paul Walker and Paul, I actually, Paul Walker does a, a pretty phenomenal performance in this. I think, um, he's a, you know, I saw it, I saw it not knowing who he was you know, in 1998. I don't think a lot of people really knew who he was, but I think he kind of gets a little bit of a short shrift for being, for having been, I mean, he's, he's now passed on, but, um, for having been, you know, this kind of slightly wooden performer or this kind of just a pretty boy, but that's kind of his role in this film. First of all, is to just kind of be the pretty boy and everyone's kind of acting in this, uh, kind of wooden way. But, uh, also I think he has some real nuance to some of those moments and he has some real like humor. Um, in particular, you know, the, the, the line where he says, I, I think I feel, um, <laughs> ill. It's supposed <laughs> to happen. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, when it, later on when he's, like, describing what happened to the to the rest of the basketball team, you know, and, and you don't get the audio of what he's saying. You just kind of – you just play score and you just kind of see him, like, describing it. I mean, there is some nuance there. You know, this is definitely – it's through his eyes that this world first starts to change. And I think that that's, it's easy – you know, with, with a lesser actor in that role, I think um, it, it wouldn't be quite as uh, acceptable to the audience – like, like what's what's really going on there i so anyway i just wanted to kind of highlight him because i think few people do when they discuss this film so i just wanted <laughs> to give him his moment there yeah and he has a pretty good arc throughout the story like you were saying showing mm -hmm. showing range and everything but yeah after he gets mauled by uh reese witherspoon Jess, jennifer Jennifer. Yeah, she's Mary Sue, like, in the TV shows, because these two teenagers, these 90s teenagers, end up in the 50s, like, in roles in the show. And so, like, Reese Witherspoon's character name is Jennifer, but she's, like, taken over this Mary Sue Parker character. So they'll call her Mary Sue, they'll call her Jennifer, we can just call her Reese Witherspoon as far as... <laughs> as long as we know who we're talking about. I think the only time later on in the movie when Hitler youth are run roaming the streets... I think Toby Maguire says Jennifer to sort of jar her out of her panic. Yeah, um, he um, he calls to her when she's uh, gonna take uh, Paul Walker to uh, Lover's Lane. He um, he does um, he does yell Jennifer when as he's kind of running out. And that's about the only time. But and then he leaves Jeff Daniels, who can't make a cheeseburger. <laughs> and Jeff Daniels, um, I he is so like like a little kicked puppy through like the first half of this movie. Yeah. I'm really through all the film, but but in particular I think what because I think there's this sort of uh, and, and the film kind of has has fun with this. Um this idea that uh this isn't like we've gone back to 1955 or whatever. This isn't uh 
like this is this hermetically sealed television world it is i mean they're literally living in a klein bottle um where the end of elm street just wraps back around to the beginning of elm street if you go down (laughs) it far enough um i wish we had gotten to see that like visually at some point i think that would be a really uh you know um kind of one of the um kind of one of the lost moments uh one thing that one thing that rewatching this film kind of told me is that man this would make a really phenomenal limited netflix series there's just so much that the film just sort of you know it, it it's running through its plot and it's kind of doing its numbers and it's doing the things that it's doing and it does them well but also, man, there's so much this that, that that there's so much to this premise that you could have done, you know, differently if you if you'd had like kind of, kind of eight hours instead of two to to kind of tell a story like this. Um, but uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And I was just say yeah, like no toilets in the bathroom, or... right? And yet they eat, so it is kind yeah. of like so what happens? So you eat and then it just sort of like digests and then goes away, you know, like, you know, it's a magic universe, like fire, things don't burn and yet cars run. So like there's still, there's some process of combustion. Like it, like it is this, um, it isn't a consistent world because it's ultimately a fantasy universe that's been put together by some kind of like trickster God or or whatever. Like it, 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 you know, it's, it's a parable, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense on sort of like, you know, it doesn't make sense on a, on a, any kind of like scientific level. You couldn't like assemble this world from, from spare parts. It is exactly this sort of like, um, internally self-contradictory, uh, universe built on this kind of set of rules that ultimately don't make any sense. And so, you know, you just kind of accept the world as it is, you know, and I kind of imagine like it is, it is interesting because, you know, like nobody like ages in pleasantville there's never like they'll talk about kind of last year the year before you know they'll kind of go back a few years or whatever but given that given what we see you could imagine that this thing has been like floating in space for a million years or something right nothing has nothing literally everybody's done the exact same thing constantly for all of recorded history until these two teenagers show up and like start (laughs) fucking around with it right that's where they get that saying you can't win them all (laughs) <laughs> That's right. They do have that saying. A JT Walsh. I, I think we can, you know, this is just, this is a still focused on the movie tangent, but how good is he as the, the foil in this movie? He's, you know, other than Loki Knotts, who's like, I'm going to get my brother's hammer Mjolnir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he he's definitely sort of the the actual big bad. He's the he's the guy that that really is the antagonist of the film because I think you 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 get at the end that that Don Knotts was uh, that that our that our that our trickster god was did this for a reason that it was uh, meant to sort of teach these kids a lesson that they're you know that he's not really the antagonist. He's just kind of pretending to be towards the middle of the film. Um, I, I, I think you know that kind of knowing smile as he drives off in the in the in the windowless van there. Reese <laughs> <You know? laughs> Witherspoon can learn and fuck, and Tobey <laughs> Maguire can stand up for himself. And Tobey Maguire maybe having a maybe having a divorced mom is not the worst thing in the world, right? You know. And he's uh, what he's the mayor of the town. He is in charge of the two white hands clasping each other chamber of commerce. Yep. Uh, which, which is sure definitely not purpose. a creepy image at all. Like, yeah. uh, you know, in the commentary track, Gary Ross even like brings that up that, that like, this was an intentional, like this very intentional image of, you know, that um, hands clasping, you know, and, you know, like we're all going to work together to solve our problems, et cetera, et cetera, 
is uh, a good thing as long as uh, you're on the inside of that, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that hands clasping should be a very like pleasant, you know, like solidarity like feeling. Uh, except like um, in reality, like these kinds of movements uh, routinely, uh, you know, it's it's who gets to be included in that circle and who doesn't. It's kind of the the ultimate question there. Yeah, uh, Reese Witherspoon with her sexuality forces the star of the all-star Pleasantville Lions basketball team right. who never misses a shot so much that there's that I, I, I still crack up when they, he misses the shot thinking that she might not go out with him when his, right. when his, when his inner Kavanaugh is starting to show. <laughs> and I like beer. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a calendar right here of when I was going to give Sally her my my pledge pin. And there the coach shields the one basketball player so he doesn't get close to the basketball. Yeah, they 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 act like it's like a like live ordinance that hasn't gone off yet. You know, like that's how they treat that basketball. Like holy shit, what's going to happen next? We're going to see flowers. People are going to start combing their hair back and listening to the other 50s music. People Turn, just... It turns out there's music that wasn't produced by John Philip Sousa. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, these kids—they're—they're—they're—they're going to be like radical communists or something. I mean, they're—they're they're listening to Dave Brubeck, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> this is this is the end of the fucking world, man. This is it. We need to find out if we are in this alone or if we're in this together. And time to march through the streets with our tiki torches and burn <laughs> the books and smash the windows. Destroy the art, make up rules. You know, books, books are empty. Book, yeah, books are blank. Well, which is exactly what you know. You could kind of imagine in this again, this world that has that that everything is within this this little small town of what, like a couple of thousand people max, right? I mean, you know, this is this is um, this this tiny tiny universe, and you know, like they have books, but the books don't have any content, so they carry books around because that's what you do in school on television uh but they don't read them because there's nothing there, you know there's just no outside you know agitating information anywhere um and uh once they once this kind of information comes in from outside that like oh here's what that here's what hook finn is actually about here's what uh, catcher in the rye is about like even giving like the general plot summary suddenly the the pages fill in with the uh with the with the text and then you can start reading them you know Creating, as as uh, Jennifer says, the dorkiest fad ever. <laughs> what were you doing in a library? I got lost. <laughs> Which uh, you know, there there is a bit of me in that moment um, where I'm like, yeah, I, I I mean, I think to a certain degree, I mean, I mean, I think we can read Jennifer as as a little bit like putting on that. Uh, display you know like oh i got lost i I wasn't actually interested in the library like i i mean i kind of get the sense that like she more than um david more than toby mcguire like toby mcguire likes this world like he he would love to just be in this and just hang out and and just like you know go through the motions because it's just it's just this comforting kind of place for him but um jennifer's the one kind of going around like finding out like you can't set things on fire here because she wants (laughs) to smoke a cigarette you know um she's the one really kind of like like testing at the boundaries of all of this and i i can i can imagine that like you know she didn't just stumble into a library i, I think she she did 
kind of she she was kind of exploring a little bit more. At least that's kind of my headcanon for uh, you know kind of justifying some of this film's treatment of her um, because I think she does uh, get sidelined a little bit after that first you know kind of thirty forty minutes or so. Um, the, the film kind of loses interest in her once she's uh, not like fucking people into full color, like, <laughs> <laughs> fucking their color out. Because yeah, like uh, as you said earlier, she sparks the entire change of this town. If Toby Maguire was sucked into it, he just would have gone through like everyone else with their their routine the the lettuce and then the cheese and then the burger, or uh, the honey I'm home I need my drink, or <laughs> we've got to play the basketball game, or those are. Those are Whitey's cookies or whatever, you know. Oh, God. <laughs> Whitey's cookies, man. Oh, man, that's so – that's such a great moment. Um, <laughs> Marley Shelton there. Uh, can you – oh, please. She can offer me her cookies anytime. That is – Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> and they do point out the stuff about, you know, 50s fashion where – uh, oh, he's not going to notice the 50s bullet bras – and everyone's tight sweaters. They, they just don't notice things like that. And that's, you know, that's the TV. That's the Pleasantville world. Well, and, and it's the, I mean, I, I, I was really paying attention to the date this time, you know, where she's sitting at the, and she's just listening to this guy. And he's like, have you ever been in like the most boring person on the planet, like conversation on a date where it's like, well, I was going to give you my pen uh, on, on Thursday there. But, um, you know, I was really nervous about that. And I just think you're really swell. And like, man, this is like a dude on a date who has nothing to say, but it's not because he actually has nothing to say. It's because the world he lives in gives him nothing else to think about. Right. You know? Um, but, uh, Jennifer definitely has something on her mind and, uh, he changes his tone pretty quickly there. <laughs> As you would imagine a young, a young lad would. Yep. In in a in lover's lane with a consenting Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> Very actively consenting Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we were we were about the same age when we saw this. I didn't see this in the theater, but I saw it as soon as it was on HBO or VHS. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so let's see. That starts and then the next big no pun intended explosion in this town is when Reese teaches her mom what sex is and how to get around uh inattentive William H. Macy. <laughs> oh, your father would never want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is there is some of that. Uh, you know, like, oh no, oh no, he would he would never he would never want to do that, you know. It's it's a little bit like she just uh like described like so there's this thing called analingus. You know, oh no. Father, oh your, no. Your father, no. Um if you can't do it on a two foot wide or a three foot wide bed. <laughs> But, I mean, you know, like, sex doesn't exist in this universe before, you know, our, our teenagers come in, right? I mean, you know, like, like everybody's just sort of pre-existing in there, you know? It's it's just, it's just and again, it's not, it's not a kind of real world. It's this, uh, like, kind of uh, homogenized, uh, you know, hermetically sealed, like, universe that just sort of 
exists, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense because you never saw sex on 50 sitcoms and you never even saw references to sex in 50 sitcoms. Um, sex just doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of imagine, like, th- there is this sort of, like, uh, again, sort of the, the the darker version of this, the the, uh, the kind of the Netflix series. Uh, I mean, you could imagine that, like, everyone just has sort of, like, uh, you know, Kendall parts down there <laughs> until, like, you know, suddenly they're, like, aroused and suddenly it's, like, you know, instead of the things turn color it's like suddenly there are new shapes forming in this transformation <laughs> and we get a burning bush or i guess yes. it's a tree but it's a tree but it's a burning bush i mean you know and and uh you know that's that's how great joan allen can orgasm it literally sets fire to trees outside that's that's how great that orgasm looks uh, orgasm 30 years or 40 years in the making i don't know how old yeah. mrs pleasantville is but yeah i'm surprised she didn't like more i'm surprised the whole house didn't go full color at that at that point (laughs) joan allen herself was uh 42 at this point so okay yeah i would would go with that's probably how old mrs pleasantville is because she's got two high school age kids and yeah no it makes sense although um it does look like joan allen is slightly older than William h macy which is uh pretty cool i guess Oh no, he's he's that he is older. Excuse me, I read it wrong. Okay, no, he's he's sixty eight now. So, oh, they're about the same age. Anyway, whatever. It's not it's not that that uh, that important a detail. But. <laughs> and so yeah, as as we were saying, the different kinds of oppression within within this world, people start getting afraid that their their routines or their positions of power. In the relationships that they have with the other people in their family or in their town, uh, people start to protest. Was uh, the one kid that quit right in the middle of a shift? And... <laughs> right. I mean, you know, where he was, he was just he was he's like a grocery bagger, and you know, you just hear the story of you know he was he just he said I don't feel like doing this anymore, and he just walked out. Groceries all over the counter. It took him three hours to clean everything <laughs> up. You know? Um, again, because it's this world where, you know, no, nobody ever like doesn't, you know, fit into their, their, their cogs that fit into the, their exact little spot. And if you're not in that spot in that exact time, um, every, nobody knows how to deal with it. I mean, there's a, there's a really interesting little like visual detail when, um, William, William H. Macy arrives home when he walks home from work, um, after, uh, right, right before the high, uh, honey, I'm home, um, sequence, uh, if you kind of watch the background behind him, every single man walking home reaches his uh, the gate in his uh, front yard and his white picket fence at the same time. Like they're literally all arriving home at the exact same moment. Like that's how clockwork this world is. <laughs> but some houses don't have dinners. Yeah, well, at least one of them didn't. And it was <laughs> it was deeply concerning. And was this when Mrs. Pleasantville told Jeff Daniels, "Paint me like one of your French, one of your French girls," uh, a la <laughs> Titanic? Or was this just when? Because uh, I I don't know I don't know how much they they really want to play into it or how much you want to talk about it, but I feel like in the world of Pleasantville, and things are getting out of schedule and everything, it's like Jeff Daniels never interacts with Mrs. Pleasantville. In the usual world, she might know who he is, but looking at her and her looking at him when Bud left before shutting the blinds or whatever it was that 
totally short circuited the the <laughs> right. the ritual of closing down because he didn't. Well, you get you kind of get the sense that you know in this kind of pre-existing universe that you know they would have been like pleasant to one another. They would have you know like oh like but uh but's gonna be running home a little bit late from work, so they would have like had conversations maybe here and there. But there there's no. They, they, everything just kind of fits into its pre-existing world, into its pre-existing slot, and so there's no kind of thought of anything else. It's after Jeff Daniels, like, you know, because when you first see him at the soda shop, it's like uh, Bud's been running late, and <laughs> uh, Jeff Daniels doesn't know how to... Uh, like he doesn't he's so kind of caught in the pattern that he's only just been kind of sitting and like rubbing away the the surface of the of the counter because oh well then you show up and then you do this and then I do that and then everything just happens in the same order and he doesn't know what to do if he doesn't get the like cue to oh now we do this other thing which is you know which which just again kind of sells the i mean you can imagine like he would sit there for a million years and just like literally burrow into the, <laughs> the 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 surface of the the, the earth you know if he, if he went long enough but uh and then later on it's like oh i don't know how i can't make the cheeseburgers well you know you do know how to make the cheeseburgers and he kind of teaches them so uh, bud or, or i guess um toby mcguire is running into this problem and this is something that i really noticed here is that as much as like he does kind of like this world from the outside kind of looking at it like i mean this is now a guy like a 17 year old who's you know going to school um and learning like the names of the different streets in the town because that's all there is to learn <laughs> in pleasantville so this absolutely what has to be a stultifying experience of of um education he plays basketball where like every shot uh, makes it and then he has to go to work and um, take orders, and, and you know he's working at, at the soda shop, and so he's he's, you know he's one of the few people in the movie that you actually see do any like work, you know actually like performing labor, which is a really interesting move in that, um, and you see him being flustered about the like how the, how to, to get the soda shop to work and that sort of thing, and I, it just kind of struck me like can you imagine being someone on the lower rungs of this world that you, like your life may be pleasant but certainly. Uh, you know, you've got to take orders from these other kids all the time, and you know you're not uh, you're not really gaining anything for it. I mean, it's just this sort of like meaningless labor to a degree. You know, like where do the cheeseburgers come from? Are there cows being slaughtered somewhere? Do they just kind of magically appear again? Like the the, <laughs> the the rules of like how like where all this comes from, and like how how the how the like why is there money you know and the, again the only reason that they have any need for money in this world at this point is just to because it's what you do on television right? you know um <laughs> gotta pay for the cheeseburgers and the bowling rentals and the, the haircuts exactly exactly um but you know I, I was struck by you know like imagine like being in this world and being like a, a real person and suddenly you're like oh and then i have to take and like like it's not it's not just sort of the fun and games that you might like, kind of imagine it from the outside right you're actually kind of living in this thing and you're having to kind of deal with this reality and um because he's getting kind of like jammed up and he can't quite like work at the pace that everybody else can because he's not a cog in the machine Def daniels doesn't yeah, he isn't able to sort of fulfill his obligations to Jeff Daniels, but the change in Jeff Daniels begins when he realizes, like, I did this in a different order. Like, I can, like, things can change. Things can be different than they were yesterday. And then when he uh, arrives at, um, you know, the, the house with Joan Allen, 
and you have that moment like this is after he's already like realized I can just close the blinds for myself. Like I don't have to, I don't just have to do the same thing all the time. And I think it's that feeling of this exhilaration at this like very banal, but very profound newness that he's discovered. And then suddenly he sees Joan Allen and he realizes like, there are feelings here. There's, there's something going on that, that maybe my responses to her don't have to be the way they always have been either. You know, <laughs> so he's already kind of had that transformative experience, I think, uh, which is kind of the interesting move there. Uh, yeah. And I like how, even though, you know, as, as many loopholes as you try to close in a shutdown sort of existence, you know, uh, Jeff Daniels had the once a year, he gets to paint a new thing, <laughs> right? He gets to, he gets to paint the uh, the inside of the glass on the uh, on the soda shop, and he does like a, a Christmas mural, you know, one day a year, and that's his. That's what he looks forward to all year long. And um, you know, well, maybe you just shouldn't think about that. That's that's totally requires <laughs> response. Like, you know, keep your head down. What a dick. I've got some commentary on this kid. Don't worry, we're, we'll we'll get there. Um, I mean, we can go there right now, man. This... Sure. I mean, I'm I'm struck by I mean, I'm struck by just all right. We might as well kind of delve into the politics a little bit because there's this um, really kind of obvious sort of civil rights era struggle stuff that the film is playing with about kind of the rise of like an authoritarianism or um, this sort of like a kind of pseudo fascist thing, and and um, that's that's kind of one level of the politics. In 2019, it struck me that there's a very different thing going on that I don't think the film quite realizes. And that is that um, David is basically, you know, David isn't like a geeky guy who likes an old 50s show because like he's just kind of into the like old 50s shows. He's not he's not like sort of this. uh, And that's sort of how I processed him. Like when I saw this film was like, oh, yeah. I love The Simpsons. I obsessively rewatch The Simpsons. He does the same thing with with the Pleasantville show. So like we're all good. He's just a geek. He's not just a geek. He's someone who like kind of deeply resents his mother for being, uh, you know, in a not you know for for being divorced. Um, for for you know going on dates. I mean, you see him like turn up the television when like she's kind of planning her 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 date and stuff. Um, he's someone who uh, wants to go talk to the pretty girl. But um, he feels like he's going to be rejected. I mean, this guy is an incel, and this guy is like reaching back to this um, kind of imagined, idealized past uh, of this te- television show, and sort of like uh, envisioning that as being, oh, this is the way things should be. I mean, David's a fucking fascist, right? I mean, <laughs> David is David is literally like the the kid who's being radicalized by you know Pepe memes today, or you know a couple of years ago. I mean that's, I mean he's literally that kid. Um, and and when you kind of realize that that like David, you know David's changed. The thing that makes him into um a full color you know person you know, towards the end of the film, is his uh, willingness to use violence to protect someone who is. Uh, engaging in sort of the non-pleasant behavior, who is, you know, his his mom, his you know, kind of fake TV mom or whatever, um, you know, who's who's being attacked by a bunch of, you know, like fascist thugs. I mean, you know, let's, let's, let's not mince words here, you know, like so so the 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 journey that David goes on is the journey from, you know fash adjacent kid like being radicalized through like cable TV to like anti-fascist action man like that's exactly the 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 narrative that we're being given here of david's character very i mean you know kind of not not really a big showy moment but i mean i think it is uh, i think it's definitely there 
Yeah, because he's. It seems like he doesn't. He doesn't really talk about it that much. But it looked like he's kind of wondering why everybody's changing, and he hasn't. And it's because he right. hasn't left his his. Because zone. you still you still kind of like this world. You still kind of like the the thing. You you still kind of buy into this value, right? Um, and uh, it's only when he's willing to like actively fight against that to protect someone that he cares about, and to uh, and to and to actually kind of make moves against this thing. It's also, I mean, you got to think that his relationship with um, Margaret uh, Marley Shelton. Oh, she's so lovely. In this uh, his relationship with uh, with Margaret is is kind of changing that as well. Um, but but that's not really the thing. I mean, that's just him. You know, that's just a teenage boy being horny. You know, that's not <laughs> that's not a change, right? Eating the forbidden fruit by the gazebo. Oh yeah, oh yeah. In the in the world where it doesn't rain until it until it does, and then you get a flood. There's a bit of like there's some there's some biblical metaphor here. Like let's just let's just leave it at that. It's, it's uh, not that, subtle. <laughs> no, I, I I'm sure there's things that are very subtle in this movie, but yeah, the biblical metaphors, the the yeah the the Brett Kavanaugh and the Richard Spencer driving around gathering people up for the chamber of commerce meeting poking fun at him for having his colored girlfriend oh yeah and the no colored signs you know that's that's another one um yeah they 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 all just sort of just like like start popping up you know right right after the rainstorm happens you know um no did you notice who that character is who uh, is driving around no no that's um that's a whitey Oh. Whitey is the Whitey is the kid who was supposed to get uh, Margaret's Whitey? cookies. Why did you go? The, well, so so like so in the in the sort of original narrative of the TV show, because David is an expert on this TV show, um, and so he knows all the plot lines. And so when um, Margaret kind of comes up to him and offers him her cookies <laughs> in a very <laughs> very overt way, um, you know. Uh, he uh, he he declines at first because like no you're supposed to give those to Whitey. Well, Whitey is the one who's like talking about your colored girlfriend towards the end. I mean that's the same guy, and um, I think that that's a uh, even though we don't see him other than in that he might be in some of the crowd scenes or whatever, but that's his only like speaking role. We don't see him anywhere else. Um, but uh, if you if you kind of remember the names, that's that's what's going on, and that's why he has the line. You can come by and, and make me those oatmeal cookies anytime. Oh, you know, right. he's, yeah. he's he he's 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 actively being like you know you're you, you know he knows on some level on some kind of like narrative level or whatever like this girl was supposed to be mine and you have taken her from me and um, you know this is this is this is not the way this is supposed to be, and. Uh, <laughs> It, it gets real creepy and just a little bit rapey there, although that's not the uh, that's not the most like overt uh, rape. When we've already mentioned, you know, Joan Allen's mom is, or pardon me, um, Joan Allen's mother character is is uh, attacked in the streets, and there is a uh, there there is a line kind of off camera dialogue of you know let's see let's see if you look like your photo there or your the painting you know the nude painting yeah. and so. Um, there is the clear implication that these people are trying to are about to, you know, at least strip her nude. Um, and uh, when when Margaret kind of runs down the street with her umbrella and um, uh, her shirt, McGuire, her shirt is ripped. Exactly. I mean, so uh, it, it, it keeps it it keeps it subtle. It does not play this kind of as, as overtly as it could. But um, there is there is, you know, imminent rape threat in this film, like on, on at least three occasions. Especially after the town gets thrown all off kilter, and it's it's it is just the the rioting mob. 
the yep. attacking women in the streets. Good thing the firefighters well, didn't know how to use their fire hoses, or I figured they would be <laughs> hosing people down in the streets and sicking dogs on them. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. You know, going, going. Sorry, I was, uh, there's probably a cat joke in there somewhere. I can't find it, so we'll just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of it's one of the great little comedy bits in the in the movie. Is when you know he runs up to the uh, the 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 fireman and it's like, "There's a fire! There's a fire!" And they're like, "I don't know. What are you talking about? Fire? What, do, what is cat?" This word? Oh, they... right. Yeah. And then they put on their helmets and everything. And yeah, no, it's because the only thing that firemen do in this universe is save cats from trees because, you know, isn't that, isn't that just a, isn't that just a better use of your time? Because cats don't know how to get out of trees, uh, but they didn't in 50s TV. I, I really like the comedy in this, you know. Oh, yeah. I've seen oh, yeah. this plenty of times and. I think this last rewatch was the first time I noticed they're just pulling right past the fire because they don't recognize it as a thing. And he's like, stop, 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 stop. And they're like, okay, well, where's, where's the cat? I think, uh, I think my whole system just crashed. Uh Oh, <laughs> okay, no, sorry. I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, interrupt our flow here. I'm just, uh... oh, it's all good. If I don't just cut all this out, we will pause for a moment. Maybe play a, they must be destroyed on site promo or something. Maybe play an anti-fascist song and be right back. <laughs> hey, feeling down? Feeling low? Not enough podcasts about movies in your life? Why not try... They must be destroyed on sight! The new Podcast Cure-All. Sure to get you right with the world and on a path to better living. We have exploitation, we have Italian horror, we have zombies, we have slashers, we have crime films, we have spaghetti westerns, we even have sci-fi and sex comedies. So take a dose of... They must be destroyed on sight! As needed, and let the hosts, Lee Russell, Daniel Harper, Paul Romali, and the odd guest host, Cure What Ails Ya. Warning, may cause atrophy, African consumption, black femur, bone shave, chin puff, colic, cramp colic, Dropsy of the brain, elephantitis, grocer's itch, jaundice, mania, miasma, mortification, palsy, pox disease, rheumatism, scurvy, St. Anthony's fire, summer complaint, and worm fit in some people. Consult a physician before listening. the last thing we were uh, talking about fascists uh <laughs> i never talk about those <laughs> yeah 
yeah, I think we pretty much worked our way to the sort of like the outbreak of violence, uh, or at least to the sort of oh, the like the town rules. We were kind of right about there, in the town meeting. Yeah. So there's Whitey, Whitey trying to get his cookies. <laughs> Whitey trying to get his cookies. <laughs> and the all white chamber of commerce comes up with how to rein back in the town. Now, of course, you. We don't we don't advocate violence. We just want total control. Right. That's real rain out there, gentlemen. So <laughs> thankfully, thankfully we're safe. It's a bowling alley. We're safe here like, in the bowling alley. No, nothing's ever going to change in the bowling alley. It's fine. Yeah, and and uh, you know it is it is kind of the the old white guys, the people who are uh, you know kind of in charge of the town, who have a, you know like nominal control, who are uh, who who had it good under the old system, right? Because you know, oh, I go to work, I you know hang out with my buddies, I come home, and there's always a dinner waiting for me, and you know like the you know it's it's uh it's these guys who don't want things to change, as always, you know the people who are you know, doing, who are doing well, who feel, uh, suddenly a sense of precarity, this, this sense that, uh, maybe uh, things are not always going to be as nice for them as, uh, they have been, who actually feel this sense of, uh, material and social loss. Uh, these are the people that always turn into uh, horrifying reactionaries. Because equality is not good for the ruling class. <laughs> <laughs> right exactly or, or even or even just you know um people being people uprooting themselves from you know kind of their traditional roles i mean fascists aren't born of you know the lower classes you know fascists are born of the you know kind of the, the comfortable you know upper middle class you know the people who are not in that kind of wealthy class but who are not um who are also not kind of on, on the bottom rungs and uh you know it is it is that sense of that that fear of loss that's what drives people to these things and uh it's always framed as something that is uh positive it's always framed as something that you know it's not framed as and now we're gonna go like kill everybody <laughs> you know <laughs> it's framed as we just want things to go back to the way they were we want things to go back to when everyone was pleasant to one another when everyone was nice to one another and when you know people knew their roles and people knew their place in this world and isn't that better isn't it better that people have have a sense of their own place and they don't have to worry about uh, all these outside influences etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh and and that's how this stuff is sold and again you know david david is hearkening back in the, in the beginning of the film he's hearkening back to this world to this world that never existed of of this um, you know, 50s is bountiful 1950s America in which everyone, uh, you know, knew their place, quote unquote, you know, and, and you know, where, where he could just have a girlfriend because, you know, he could just go ask whichever pretty girl he wanted to to uh, to wear his pen. And, uh, you know, that they would have uh, considerably fewer options because of, you know, like stultifying um, sexual norms and such. Uh you know, I mean, I don't want to like read too harshly into David there, but I think it, I think it is, you know, something, you know, it is why he's kind of attracted to this to begin with, and it is the this this kind of this kind of world that is kind of built around us is is um, you know, that that is how this stuff works in the real world, you know. <laughs> if they want, he wants to make Pleasantville great again. He well, he does. I mean, that's certainly um, J.T. Walsh's uh, character. You know, um, Big Bob is, is how he's mm. identified. I never realized his character name was Big Bob until I started <laughs> looking at the <laughs> at the cast list. I was like, oh, it's J.T. Walsh. He's the mayor guy. No, he's Big Bob. And in fact, there's a um, 
in the bowling alley, you can see in the background, like they've all got uh, the, the, the scores are right, right behind uh, during his kind of big uh, political speech. And uh, you can see, you know, Big Bob has, has they, they're on like the seventh frame and he has bowled seven strikes. Like that's, yeah, right. that's, that's how, you know, that's how, you know, he's the big cheese in this town is, you know, every, every, uh, you know, every bowl is a strike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he probably was on one of those championship basketball teams where he can sure kick the ball like toby mcguire or was that a michael jordan commercial back in the <laughs> yeah there was a michael jordan commercial where i think it was jordan and god who else was it um it might have been magic johnson or something maybe but... the nothing but net right yeah that that ad i remember that um <laughs> increasingly uh convoluted uh you know trick shots that they each had to do right and yeah big Big Bob wants to make make Pleasantville great again. He cannot stand. Once Hush! Be oh warned, my. I am living here and I am a ferocious beast. Let's see, where were we? Oh, oh surprise, surprise, talking about fascists <laughs> and scared yes. old white men who cannot let things change because they don't know a world that's any different. Right, and that's uh, and that's clearly like in uh, William H Macy's like big moment in the film when uh, you know the "Honey, I'm home" speech, where you know I put my hat down, I said, "Honey, I'm home." There's no dinner, there's no nothing, there's no like things are changing, and I'm and I'm losing out on you know this thing that I thought was supposed to be mine, this thing that I was that was supposed to just be mine by by no like effort on my part you know he doesn't have to be a good husband he doesn't he just has to sort of exist in this world and he's supposed to have a wife who's just going to take care who's going to raise his children and who's going to stay home and make his dinner and clean his house and um when he doesn't when he when suddenly he's presented with the um thought that he's not going to have that anymore um it leads him into that into that darker place and uh, you know, again, kind of, kind of the frustration here is that, like, while this is definitely the thematic heart of the film, um, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't really last long enough. I, I wish we got more detail on on this. I wish we had, I wish we had, um, I wish it let itself go a little bit darker. It's still, still that slightly more kind of family friendly, um, kind of accessible version of this. It's, it's, it's still kind of playing to the comedy a little bit more. I do. I do wish again, just kind of the longer version that would that would that would um, kind of deal with these subjects in a little bit more nuanced way. But um, it's a phenomenal performance from William H Macy. I mean, of course, it's William H Macy. Yeah, <laughs> William H Macy gave a good performance in a movie. I mean, I know. <laughs> you heard it here first, this, folks. You know? I, I know. I just watched the movie, but is the is the, the "Honey, I'm Home" scene before or after the Joan Allen in the kitchen, afraid to show that she is changing? Oh, that's uh, that's way after. That's because, way after. Uh, okay. She she turns to color after the masturbation and the burning bush thing. There were two burning bushes in that. Ha ha ha! No, she turns she turns to color, and then um, she has to she can't show her husband, and so uh, Toby McGuire like puts makeup on her to cover it up, and then she kind of goes out and serves them whatever hors d'oeuvre or whatever. But that's way way earlier. Um, because by the time, um, after the, 
So when she decides to stay out all night and then the rainstorm happens and she's off, I guess she's fucking Jeff Daniels at this point or is she kind of fucking him later? I kind of got the sense that like maybe it was just an emotional connection at that point. Um, But no, because they turned to color that night. So I'm assuming they fucked. I'm just I'm just going to kind of work it out there. But uh, so they have um, their night together and she goes back home. And that's the moment where she says, like, no, I'm not I'm not going to do this for you anymore. Like, yeah. she's leaving him, you know. I've made you a whole bunch of food, which is the only <laughs> thing you ever fucking ask from me. I made you I made you a meatloaf and I made you like two or three lunches and, a and, pie? There eggs, and there's a pie. And all you have to do is like turn the key, turn the knob to 350 and then put the pie in 40 minutes later. <laughs> and he can't even do that. He's a little bit like. He's like scamming for cocktail olives because he's just completely incompetent in the kitchen, which, you know, like, I mean, you know, the, for, for, for a man of, I mean, there are real, real world men of that kind of age who are, who are like not that much less incompetent in the kitchen, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm reminded of like, uh, there's that episode of King of the Hill where Cotton Hill has to like make food for the kids. And, uh, you know, he's, he has a kind of a very similar moment, like this is cold. Hey, you got to put it in the oven. Like, ah, that's women's work. <laughs> Cause he, he's a man. He's got to know what knobs are, but right. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> I mean, she's just like showing him exactly what he has to do. I mean, I could, you know, and I, and I can imagine like the, uh, sort of slightly later on, you know, like he, she just puts like a post-it note, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> this knob to here for 35 minutes, you know? And yeah, I, I, I like that it, it, it touches on that and it pokes on that and it, it was still the nineties. So that was still relatively a lot of the norm, a lot of what is expected. I know we were talking about this off mic, but my, my wife doesn't even know where everything in the kitchen is. I am Mrs. Pleasantville. I, <laughs> right. I do the laundry. I do the cooking. I do the sewing when, uh, when my wife cooks, it's she orders out. Right, right. You know, well, thanks for cooking, dear. You know, and my kid, I was picking him up at preschool the other day and he said he said something like moms don't cook. Dad's cook. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I we still have to work on that, but I kind of enjoyed that a little bit more than if it was the other way around. I have to say. Sure, sure. No, no, I. I... <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we used to share cooking a little bit more, but, uh, you know, lately the last few years I've been, I just do like 95% of the cooking in this house, um, you know, for, you know, various reasons. Um, particularly when I was, uh, I, I, I went to school later in life. I finished college later in life. So, uh, it was my like, uh, way of kind of winding down after doing like, you know, organic chemistry homework. It was, you know, <laughs> now I can go like cook, you know, I spent pretty much all of my twenties and most of my thirties, you know, playing music and stuff. And so I've had quite a few restaurant jobs cause those are easy to leave to go on tour. And, sure. you know, I met my wife when I was about 30 and I just be like, Oh no, you can, you can cook that. <laughs> just, just weird little thing. You know, I started packing her lunches at work and stuff like that. And it just sort of, it, it becomes, I guess your own little routine. She doesn't get upset. When there is no dinner on the table, but right, uh, yeah, like when we when we record and stuff, I try to make sure that I've made sure everyone's got their food. Right. 
we have a joke that I that I uh, I, I like to just I, I I grew up in the South, so I uh, you know I, I have this thing about like wanting to make sure people are fed when they come over to my house. What part of the South did you grow up in? I grew up in Alabama, oh, okay, um, outside Montgomery mostly. Um, I lived in Huntsville for ten years, so uh, but yeah, no, I lived in Alabama till I was twenty eight. I've been to Alabama once. Yeah, uh, somewhere in, it was. Uh... My punk band couldn't easily find a show in Alabama ever. <laughs> sure. Uh, so it, we passed through it on our way to New Orleans. And mm-hmm. I, it was kind of interesting because I got the, I guess the treatment people describe people with weird hair and weird clothes get in back in the day or whatever. I, I, I got to have some of that in Alabama of people sort of keeping their kids away from me. And and stuff like that. So, uh, what were you? Where were you driving through? I mean, what was the? What, where were you driving from to get to New Orleans? We were uh, the way shows went. We were driving from Nashville to New Orleans. Okay, so you were going like straight down sixty-five or whatever, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, no, I've I've driven that. I've driven that stretch. You know, sixty-five goes like all the way down the state, and then you'll like cut off and to to get to Louisiana. Um, but yeah, I lived in Mobile for a couple of years. I lived in Huntsville for like ten years, and but kind of grew up in in the, kind of the center of the state. So like I know that I know I sixty five in Alabama <laughs> very well. I've driven it a lot. There is sort of some sort of ingrained hospitality with the people that are showing you hospitality. You know, <laughs> right, right. To to the people to the people that deserve hospitality to to the right kinds of people. Yeah, if you get my drift on that. <laughs> I don't want to get into the Pleasantville analogy because I don't want to say people in the South don't read books, but, you know, we got the firefighter. They're just just books by, you know, Bill (laughs) O'Reilly. We'll do it live. (laughs) You know, Bill O'Reilly is the biggest selling history book writer in America right now. Is he? Because he writes all these like nonsense right wing books about like Churchill and you know, whatever. I don't even know all the titles, but there. But he's he's written a ton of these. Like the, he's written. I'm assuming there's a ghostwriter in there somewhere doing most of the heavy lifting on that. But yeah, no. Basically, Bill O'Reilly sells more like history textbooks by himself than like all the academic presses combined. <laughs> wow. Unless he's Bill O'Reilly, he's a best-selling author, and they get like so many copies go through like these kind of right-wing distribution channels and go to all like the various you know. Uh, shows and the very you know kind of giveaways and all that kind of stuff so i mean you know like there's you know it's nice to have like a billion dollar industry that's just built around like you're pushing your kind of vision of the world's propaganda out there for you right yep big bill o'reilly yep bowling with big bob <laughs> you kind of imagine bill o'reilly being the guy who's like you know my wife burned my shirt she said she was just thinking <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to imagine like like Bill O'Reilly and Glenn Beck and you know like Tucker Carlson and you know like all those guys like sitting around there in that in that bowling alley, right? Yeah. She was thinking about all those women I had to pay off for sexually harassing. <laughs> she really did not want to do the falafel thing. It was <laughs> yeah. Oh, Bill O'Reilly, how mockable you are. You are doing the spaghetti monsters work or the lord's work or whatever deity you know loki don knots whichever <laughs> sure whatever uh, whatever deity is out there right 
with with the amount of attention you pay to these people because my brain hurts when i listen to tucker carlson talk and yeah, he makes well, me miss bill o'reilly <laughs> you remember when bill o'reilly was like the was the far right guy and now he's like the moderate center <laughs> yeah it's how the mighty have fallen well, and now Bill O'Reilly is out there. Like, he's got a podcast now, I think. He's doing his own. You know, he's still pushing the same thing. He's just kind of making money on the side. I mean, Bill O'Reilly never has to work again. Like, even with the sexual assault settlements and, and whatever. I mean, he's, you know, he, he is a multimillionaire many times over. You know, but yeah. he he's still out there, still pushing his bullshit. He and Ann Coulter are going to form the centrist GOP party and... Put in Joel Lieberman or somebody like that. <laughs> well, Ann Coulter is pretty much actively a white nationalist at this point. I mean, Ann Coulter is right on that edge of like actually advocating that Jewish people should be put into ovens. Like, I mean, she is she's right up there. I mean, the the like the 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 fashy like the actual kind of open racist like you know people to the right of Richard Spencer. Those people call her Queen Anne. Really, really. They love Ann Coulter and they love Tucker Carlson because they speak to like the, uh, you know, they're basically doing the white nationalist rhetoric and just toning it down slightly to make it like broadcast worthy. But like Ann Coulter has like tweeted out the number 14. Ann Coulter is on, you know, is on record as being, it was like supporting, thinking that Donald Trump isn't being aggressive enough about the wall. Like she whines at him constantly for not actually building the wall and just saying he's going to build the wall. That is what she's mad at him about right now, isn't it? Ann Coulter Coulter has complained. Ann Coulter has complained about the number of Jewish people who own media companies like on air on Fox news. What? We're just not allowed to notice that like there's so many like Jewish people running the news media. Yeah. That's never that's never a sentence that's ended badly, you know? <laughs> I always kind of pictured her as being farther from the right than Laura Ingram, where she's so seems at least to me, she seems so right that people aren't even sure if she meant to or not do that Nazi salute or whatever at the at the convention. Or am I mixing right. things up? No, no, that's 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 her. Um yeah, and uh, I mean, there are so many of these figures. It's like it's it is kind of hard to say like who's further right. I mean, ultimately, the right. thing with um, are you her a is bigger she... Nazi, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, I think the point that I would make is that someone like uh, you know, you know, Megan Murphy or what's her name? Sorry, not Megan Murphy. Is it Megan Murphy? What Ann Coulter, Laura Ingram, and Laura Ingram. Sorry, I was thinking of somebody else. Um, yeah, I think the thing I would make is is someone like Laura Ingram is more just kind of like um, appeasing that kind of like boomer neoconservative base. Ann Coulter is actually pushing for like some version of like soft, peaceful, quote unquote, ethnic cleansing. Like, I don't think Ann Coulter, Coulter's columns get republished on like, you know, V-Dare <laughs> in American Renaissance. <laughs> you know, Ann Coulter is actively pushing like, soft fascism at this point and by fa- i don't mean that in a hyperbolic way ann coulter is almost actively pushing like race realism and like we should lock all the non-white people out of the country like levels of you know race race hatred i mean you are you're not even in the trenches you are like 
you're in their trenches <laughs> almost <laughs> with as much attention and, and the deep dive. I, I can't recommend any of your shows enough, but really anybody that's listening to this show right now, you've got to check out I Don't Speak German or they must speak German on site. Um, <laughs> I should do a, I should do a mashup audio. You know? On one, let's talk about like sex comedies and uh, old westerns, and then uh, just intersperse like a little conversation about uh, the crying Nazis' drug habits. You know, <laughs> just throw it all together. Yeah, let's let's explore the uh, the views on race that John Wayne had and talk about. <laughs> well, that's something that we'll probably eventually do. <laughs> <laughs> Lee and I have said, like, one movie we're never going to do is The Searchers, just because it's just, you know, like... Yeah. Or we might make that, like, our very last episode. It's like, okay, finally we're going to do The Searchers, and oh my god, what a giant piece of flaming horseshit this is in so many ways. But, but getting back a little bit to Pleasantville... <laughs> sure. Uh, we really just have... Yeah, we, we've got the rules that they set up about these are the kinds of music you can listen to. These are the colors you're allowed to use with your art. Black, white, and gray. Yeah, black, white, and gray. Those are the three colors. Which is like, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to take this world that actually has color in it at this point. And they're trying to say, well, we're just going to literally paint over all of that. Like, that's the like that's the implication, right? Is, yeah, that's how we fix it. You know, we're going to make it better by literally just pretending it's not there. <laughs> Separate your beds again. Don't get any. What's he going to do? His wife wants one of those bigger beds. (laughs) Poor bastard. If they could say bastard, one of them would say the poor bastard. And you see how quickly some people who are free respond to the rules. Oh, you can't unplug that jukebox. We can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. We'll get in trouble. I, I don't know how many uh, knowing exchanged looks happen, but then Toby Maguire plugs it back in and he and Jeff Daniels paint the mural with the flaming books and people kissing and all the things that everybody's trying to outlaw. And while the Fahrenheit 451 firefighters are shoveling up the ashes of the books, they get arrested and put on trial. And we don't need a lawyer. No, no, they they get arrested for uh, painting the uh, the side of the uh, town hall. They do like a the special mural that's like all this kind of stuff that's happening. And so during the riots, the uh, the fascists, the these fascist mobs, uh, destroy the uh, nude painting of Joan Allen that's on the soda shop. But they actually, it's either the town hall or actually the police station. I mean, it's kind of the big, you know, like kind of where the meeting is supposed to be happening. And they like, they just kind of fall asleep there. They know they're going to be arrested. I mean, this is, you know, active, uh, active protest at this point, you know. And they've got the segregated, segregated courthouse. Which is probably the best time to kind of mention this one, like kind of issue with all of the films like this, that this is entirely a film of white people. There, there is no actual personal color in this cast. This movie is lily spotless white. Now, the reason is because it's it's kind of built into the premise, right? But it does get a little problematic when you're trying to kind of tackle like racial themes and like civil rights themes. And, you know, you're making like, oh, these are our colored actors and they're, you know, in color instead of black and white. But they're all 
white people. So, I mean, it does, you know, whenever it's kind of that like Star Trek phenomenon of like whenever you make a uh, kind of a, a metaphor about some kind of civil rights, you know, kind of injustice or some kind of issue on that level, whenever you do that in the context of like a sci-fi fantasy uh, show, you're automatically sort of like uh, taking attention away from the actual people who are being oppressed and the actual like real things in your society. And um, it does kind of, it, it is kind of like, um, at least in the kind of the circles I move, it is the sort of thing that gets uh, kind of well trod over that area that like this is, you know, the, like there is kind of a time and a place for it. Um, I mean, it's just kind of baked into the premise here. There's not much you can do about it. Um, but it is something that that's kind of like, you know, actively um, kind of one of those uh, one of those just kind of obvious failure points of the, of, the, of the film, just in terms of its conception. Like once you've decided to do this. That's pretty much the way you have to do it, but uh, yeah, it's still a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I feel like even the the fifties television that they are putting on, even those character those shows did occasionally have have an actual African American character on occasion. They were right. still in a horrible. They you know they usually had a shit job or. They only showed up every once in a while. You know, you got to wonder when we are diving into the fascistic clockworks of Pleasantville. When you get into that, you start to wonder, like, where where did everybody go? What did Big Bob do before? I don't know. And that's in the darker, the darker. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. The darker universe. But it is something that. I think wasn't even considered to be an issue in 1998. I mean, I think it, I think it, it, it is, uh, I don't know, like definitely people were talking about it, but you know, we've just like sort of the cultural understanding of these things has just moved so much further since then, you know, um, you know, because, you know, people of color have always known that they weren't being included in these movies, you know, like, um, and, and, you know, certainly there were like kind of academic conversations about this stuff. It's just that, um, I mean, one of the pleasant things, pleasant things about, (laughs) you know, sort of the modern era and sort of the, um, you know, one of the things that like social media has done is meant that, um, and the internet more broadly has meant that uh, people of marginalized identities actually get to like speak up for themselves and actually have, you know, the ability to, um, you know, have their voices be heard, at least in, in, in some way where some of the rest of us uh, can hear it. And um, that's a good thing, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. using, using some of, some of the, the technology to a better benefit. So yeah, the jury, <laughs> the and, then, jury and then we get, peers. and then we get the trial, you know, which, uh, I mean, this is another kind of one of those things that's just sort of like, I don't know, like it, it feels like the plot is kind of grinding along. I mean, again, this whole like sequence of the film, which is really, really important from the uh, kind of introduction of Rain to this sort of like a J.T. Walsh kind of kind of fashy takeover stuff all the way forward until sort of the end of the film is really only about like 30 minutes or so in a two hour movie. Um, and then you have this kind of like um a little bit of a denouement, kind of a character denouement. And um, it does feel like it's it's wants to get some of these images in, which are, you know, undoubtedly powerful. Um, and yet, like, this is the kind of stuff where I feel like the film does kind of fall down just in the sense of, like, it's, it's bringing up these issues, but it doesn't really have time or it doesn't give itself the time to really, um, you know, deal with them in any kind of substantive way. So you get this kind of, like, uh, you know, 
well acted kind of well put together trial scene that ultimately is just like and now i can make my dad feel things and uh (laughs) you know he's gonna turn into a person of color and suddenly uh you're gonna realize it's all in you too and you get the kind of like the big happy ending and stuff you know when um in any kind of like more realistic you know depiction i mean basically you know one side wins and one side loses so either the uh you know the fascists. You know, like stamp down on the uh, on the uh, people of color. I keep using that. I don't know what else. I don't want to say colored people, but like the colorized really what people. They call the colorized people. The technicolor people. Um, you know, either the fascists like literally stomp down on the on the technicolor people and you know put them all into uh, you know uh, cover them all in paint or whatever, or um, you know the, camps. <laughs> re-education. You know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, you know the the uh, kind of uh, the the uh, technicolor people are going to you know kind of kind of win some kind of limited victory, but there's always going to be this like rump of society that's that's always going to be like missing the way things used to be. And I think the the kind of overwhelming happy ending. I mean, it, it it's nice because it's a movie and it's a feel good movie, but it's also like oh yeah no this this isn't like actually how this works you know <laughs> like. <laughs> Do, do you think Reese Witherspoon ever comes back? I I actually really like the uh, the ambiguity of the ending, and I and I think that's partly like, you know, if you listen to the commentary like Gary Ross, and I haven't listened to it in like twenty years, probably, or probably not that long, but you know, ten years at least. Um, I bought this DVD pretty much as soon as it was released in like ninety nine. So I, I mean, I literally I watched a twenty year old DVD of this today. So. Um, no, I I think if you if you listen to the commentary, I think that like there's a lot of that like kind of last that denouement of the film where it's meant to just kind of be open ended and you know just kind of let the audience sort of make their own decision about how they feel about it. And, you know, when I saw it and when I was when I originally saw it, I was just kind of assumed, oh, she's going to go to college in Pleasantville and then just like and learn some skills or whatever, and then you know like come back, you know, kind of later on. And there's some again in the commentary track, Gary Ross talks about how. You know, because Pleasantville is on for 30 minutes a week, then, you know, so much time in the universe of Pleasantville, like an hour in the real world is, you know, two weeks in Pleasantville. And so essentially she can basically just take a long weekend, get a four year college degree. And so, like, you know, I think his his intention is that she goes to school and then kind of comes back. But I I kind of imagine rewatching it this time. It's like she's gone off into the world. Like she's just like, cause the world of Pleasantville has expanded and there's, there's this kind of larger universe and maybe she just stays there. She just becomes a, a Pleasantville resident and you know, Hey, you know, I, I think that's a perfectly valid reading. I like that. I definitely like that. Uh, is there, is there anything that we, any scenes that we, we have reached the end of the film? Uh, right. Was there anything that you had? I, we didn't really come into this knowing which way, either of us were going to steer this thing, but was there something that we missed that you think we would be remiss in not talking about? Um, no, I feel like, I feel like we've kind of covered it pretty well. Um, I just wanted to mention some of the uh, actors in it, if you don't mind, please. I mean, again, um, uh, I mean, I've, I've made my feelings about Marley Shelton very well known in this, but I think she's really phenomenal. Not only is she uh, lovely, but I think she's really, really good in the film. I think in the same way that um, Paul Walker kind of has the thankless role as the, you know, the kind of the dunce who, who has to be the, the person who this change first starts manifesting through. I think Marley Shelton, um, the film does kind of like 
you know, in a way, the film kind of sidelines Reese Witherspoon at a certain point, and then she becomes a, our kind of female protagonist. But she really is just kind of the girlfriend character. But I think she does a lot with it. I mean, if you just kind of watch her performance and a lot of her, uh, you know, body language and a lot of what's kind of going on with her, you really kind of get a sense of there. There is a really subtle, interesting performance going on. Also, um, uh, I don't know if you ever watched Psych, the uh, the USA Network TV series. I have seen an episode or two. Okay. Um, I was, a, I was a big fan of that in the first few seasons before it kind of went completely like, you know, it's like the same story over and over again. It's like all these kind of like, you know, weird detective TV series and they just kind of like, kind of go off the deep end a bit. Um, if they run for eight years and that, you know, like basically the lead kind of got old enough where it just kind of felt like you shouldn't be this much of an asshole man child anymore. But Maggie Lawson is really great in that. She's kind of the, the, the co-lead in some ways. She's the, she's a female detective who ends up being the, the love interest. And she's one of the uh, girls uh, who's, um, I think she's Lisa Ann, so she's one of uh, Reese Witherspoon's friends, and I just love seeing her, uh, just because I, I have like really nice uh, memories of. I, I really did uh, like that show for a while, and it's just nice to see her like before she like several years before that started um, when she was like super young here. Um, also, we've got um, Jane Kasbarek is uh, the mother is is the real world David and Jennifer's mom, and uh, she was uh, she was the mom on uh, people remember her from Malcolm in the Middle. She she's got I mean that that sort of ending sequence of um, you know him saying you know there's not a way it's supposed to be you know it's not supposed to be one thing or the other you know we 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 don't have to have a certain kind of car a certain kind of house and, and that was a really powerful message that I needed to hear at 18 and kind of what I kind of left this film with what what kind of made me love it in a lot of ways was like that sentiment i think it is a really powerful moment and uh, i think she's a she's a really good performer there kind of given like not as much to do as uh, she could be but again like really great actors in in small roles that um and she was kind of unknown i mean she'd been in stuff but certainly you know like a few years later when she's on malcolm in the middle she's much much more famous (laughs) than she was at this point right but yeah no those uh just a, just a couple of uh, actors that I and I wanted to uh, kind of call out there as being uh, as being quite quite nice for me to to get to see them in the in the film. And uh, again, very well cast film. There's a lot of really good people in it. And probably the only other thing I mean, I, and I've touched on this a little bit, is that I do think uh, you know, kind of rewatching it today, the um, I think I think the film slut shames Reese Witherspoon's character a bit. I mean, I think she can, she even has a line like, "I did the slut thing for a while. It kind of got old." And I think it does kind of like the film is much more interested in um, Tobey Maguire's kind of transformation than it is in sort of in Reese Witherspoon. I think we just really, I, I really wish we got more with her. We got more of the kind of context of like, how does she feel about reading? I mean, like she's reading like, you know, D.H. Lawrence and, and um, you know, like, like is she just kind of getting off on it as like this kind of sexy, dirty book or, you know, like, like it, you know, and, and the, the film just kind of like, it really doesn't give her a, a kind of interiority. And again, it really doesn't give David much of an interiority either. I mean, that's kind of one of the, I mean, it, it is a little bit of a, of a, of a parable of, of sort of like blank character that we're that we can kind of interpret in a lot of different ways but i think the film does i mean especially with someone as talented as reese witherspoon and as good as she is in this film um the fact that you know for for almost half the film she's she's kind of sidelined it, it does kind of become a problem for me um but she is she is well used particularly in the comedy sequences like the breakfast scene where they give her like this 
giant um, load of you know pancakes and sausage and bacon and a whole ham steak and it's like eat up (laughs) she she has some she has some really nice uh, you know uh, some really nice um, uh, performance uh, comedy bits uh, kind of in the beginning but um, yeah no that's that's uh, that's pretty much it just great film Um, yeah I think we I think we covered it fairly well would you like to add anything to where people can find you? I know you're pretty active on Twitter. I am. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. Um, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me if you just want to, you know, kind of reach out that way. Um, you can find uh, my podcast, They Must Be Destroyed on Site, uh, tmbdos.podbean.com. Uh, I don't speak German. You can find it at uh, I don't speak German.lipson.com. And uh, Wrong With Authority is Wrong With Authority. Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's just wrong with authority.lipson.com. So, yeah, all those links will be in the show notes. But, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. I try to do those little bits of the, the cookie, the fortune cookie message at the end. I can't remember what we did in the episodes that you have heard, but, you know, like Last House on the left is don't let him get you to the second location. <laughs> and in this, like you said, it's it doesn't have it's not supposed to be any way. Right. Is that or how's the quote? You got the quote better than I did. But yeah, it's not supposed to be anyway. And stand up to fascists and have fun (laughs) with sex and books. (laughs) Have safe, fun, consensual sex and books. Make sure you're consensual with your books. That's that's (laughs) (laughs) thank you again, man. I I had a great time. This has been great. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I can come back sometime. I hope so. And uh, everybody else, I hope you come back next time as well. And don't forget to duck and cover.
But I know 